But I read recently about honeybees, and uh, honeybees are a species of bees that, that live in colonies of between 35,000 and 50,000 members at a given colony. And in this colony, there's a mother bee, a queen bee, and she rules, and she's clearly identifiable. Then, the, then there's thousands of worker bees, and uh, these worker bees protect the hive and build a honeycomb and bring products to them and clean it and uh, defend the colony against invaders. And then there's, a, then there's a few hundred what's called drones. Now, these drones are, are males. Now, the only task of the drones is to mate with the queen. And uh, after they mate, they, they quickly die. The workers, the thousands and thousands of worker bees, uh, they care for the queen. In fact, they actually have like a little entourage or a court that goes where the queen goes, and they groom her and take care of her and her very needs. Um, but uh, these worker bees are females, and uh, they're infertile. Now, these bees uh, are responsible for all of plant life on this planet. They, they pollinate with flowers, and some of you know better than I do, and then fertilize, and as a result, there's new seeds and new plants that come forth. But what's so interesting about it is the intricacy and the, and, the, and the care of God in just one simple insect, honeybees, and the complexity of that colony and how they function. And, and just looking at the pictures, they say, only God could have done something like this. And I think that they have an integral part of how our entire human race functions. Now, if God took that much work to create honeybees and sustain them and care for them, how much worth are you? And I, if going through Genesis chapter 1, when God creates the, the universe and then the world and plants and then animals, and the, the, the sixth day is the climax of creation, when God creates man and woman, and uh, he creates us, he crowns us with glory and honor, he makes us kings and queens, and, and what a rule is creation, and, and he creates us for a relationship with himself. And, and the God of the universe, for some reason, wants and longs for relationship with humans, with people who will freely choose to love God back. And, and so in Genesis 1 and 2, we've talked about how, how in the Garden of Eden, that Adam and Eve and the, and the first male and female had perfect fellowship with God, perfect relationship. There was unhindered, carefree freedom and love and vulnerability and nakedness and perfect fellowship with, with their father God. And uh, we talked about that. And you see, God made you and God made me with a raging thirst for himself. Inside of you, there's a raging thirst to be filled with God. And we fill it with other things, but there's a thirst inside of you that, that rages. And you, there's an ecstasy of relationship that you long for, which only God can give you. And, and uh, he, he made you and created you for this deep, eternal involvement with him. I want you to hear that. God made you for an eternal and a deep involvement with him. And that's your home, that's, your, that's something in you. And, and this, this desire to be pure and loving and passionate is God in you coming forth. Now, he also created you to have personal intimacy with, with others. And Adam and Eve had a perfect marriage. They, they had a totally open, vulnerable, uh, Genesis 2, 24, they, they had no shame, they, they were naked, they were able to give love perfectly. They were able to receive love perfectly. They weren't self-protective. They, uh, they weren't afraid. They, they were totally vulnerable and, and totally intimate. And we defined intimacy last week as a close, personal, affectionate relationship of, of two people. And, and uh, they had complete security, one with another. It was a perfect marriage. It, it was awesome. 
And then we talked about last week there was a catastrophe, and the catastrophe was the fall. And uh, they, they, they chose to not love God, and God set up a probation or a, a test and, and uh, not to eat from this one particular tree in the garden. And uh, God didn't explain why. It was just simply their devotion to the, as God was God, and they were not. And they were to trust and live in, by faith in God. Uh, but they chose not to do that. And remember, the serpent comes into the garden, and Adam and Eve were to judge Satan and slay him. But they did not. Adam was passive. Eve believed the lie. Began to dialogue with the evil one. Is God really good? I don't know. Maybe he's not. Maybe he's trying to hold out on us. Won't let us eat from that tree. What's he doing? And they basically rebel against God, go their own way. And we have what's called the fall. I call it the catastrophe. And as a result, there's immediate consequences. Their relationship with God is broken. It's shattered. There's no longer perfect fellowship. There's no longer this beautiful intimacy. There's no longer this close. There's no longer walking in the cool of the garden. There's no longer seeing God's face. Now it's shattered. They no longer have intimacy in their marriage. Their marriage now is, is filled with hiding and, and shame. And, and now they, they don't feel so good about themselves. They feel embarrassed. They, and, they're, and they're protecting themselves. And they're not vulnerable. And they're lying. And they're, they're speaking against each other. And all of a sudden, the intimacy and the beauty and the perfect love in their marriage is shot. And not only for them, but all marriages that ever followed, all human beings, they're our first parents that ever have lived since. And, and internally, now, now they're, they're struggling with feelings of ugliness and shame. And so now where there was intimacy and openness with God and with each other, now there's hiding, blaming, pretending, and shame. And now there's distance in relationship, there's pain in relationship. And now as children of Adam and Eve, and we all are, children of the first parents, we carry with us two things. One is uh, uh, this God-given thirst for God, this passion for intimacy with God and intimacy with other people, this passion. There's something in us that, that is to create and to shape like God creates and shapes. Remember we talked about we're to subdue the earth. Cutting means cutting through a virgin forest and then cultivating it. We were all created to engage the earth actively. And there's something in us that's positively to be doing that. At the same time, as children of our first parents, and parents reflect their children, we also have an, within us an independent, stubborn will that wants to do our own thing and uh, to be independent of God and to hide and to pretend. That also is in us. So both these things are in every one of us in this room. This, this positive passion for God to create and to shape the earth, but also this desire to be independent of God called sin, to run our own lives, and to hide, and to be pretending. Now, the Bible's really a story. And we talked about last week, we finalized by talking about God. The miracle of Genesis 3 is God makes a way back for Adam and Eve. God doesn't kill them for their rebellion and their sin. But the miracle is they're, they're, they live. They don't just live. God pursues them. Where are you, Adam? That song we ended with. Where are you, Adam? And he pursues Adam and Eve. He even, they, they cover themselves with some uh, wimpy clothing, but God now slays an animal and clothes them himself and pursues them and promises a savior, but God goes after them and to have them back in relationship of intimacy with him, and he makes a way back. Now, in fact, the whole Bible can be seen as a story of God wooing the human race. He's going after his creation of people, these human beings whom he's crowned with glory and honor, who have chosen to go their own way. The Bible is a story of God pursuing us going after us in our rebellion, our running away, our getting distracted, and he's trying to woo us back and through his son Jesus. Now, 
What God also does to woo us back is he declares what's called normally the curse. He pronounces a sentence, and that's the text that Debbie read. And the sentence is on first the serpent. He curses the serpent, Satan, and then he speaks to Adam and Eve and to us. And his sentence is very heavy. There are consequences for the disobedience. It's called sin in the world in which we live. We live in a fallen world. And um, he does this because he loves us. Now, you're gonna, when you hear this, you're going to say, this is really hard. This is, this is heavy. It doesn't seem very loving. God doesn't just declare this sentence on the human race because he's mad, like we get mad at our kids. Like, go to your room. We don't know why. Just go to your room. I don't want to see your face. It's not that kind of a punishment. It's that of a, of a doctor, a surgeon. We have a surgeon here. As you know, when you have a C-section, the surgeon has to cut so the baby's life is saved. Or when there's an appendicitis, you've got to cut so the person's life might be saved. Or open-heart surgery, there's a cutting that a surgeon does to save a life. But the cutting is necessary. Now, this curse we're going to talk about that God releases into the human race, which you'll all relate to, is like a surgeon. God cuts, and there's pain in what I'm going to talk about in a few minutes. But he does it because he loves us. And he wants to save our lives. And he wants to bring us back to himself. But you got to understand, there is a cutting, and it's painful. And that's the verses 16 to 19 that we're going to read. So let's go back to verse 16. And what I'm going to do to you, to you is, these are, these are really gifts of love. And that God gives us, these things I'm going to explain. So keep that in your head. Now, if you're taking notes, there's two parts to today. The first is God's going to lay out reality. So the first part is reality. Many of us don't like reality. The second part is, first is reality, and the second part is our choices of what we're going to do with that reality. Okay? So let me just begin with reality, okay? I want you to repeat for me a phrase that's found in verse 18. Now, understand, God doesn't curse Adam and Eve. He doesn't curse humanity. We're, the, we're, a, we're his glory, we're kings and queens of his creation. But he does curse the serpent and he curses the ground in which we live. But the, a phrase to kind of summarize reality is this phrase, thorns and thistles. It will produce thorns and thistles, the ground for you. So I want you to repeat with me the phrase, thorns and thistles. Ready? Thorns and thistles. One more time. Ready? Thorns and thistles. All right. Now, he's going to begin with going after Eve in verse 16, but really it applies to Adam as well, because in pronouncing uh, this sentence to Eve, it has to do with a special bearing on the way that we relate to each other. And he's going to say the way our relationships are in marriage and out is marked by pain and marked by thorns and thistles. Then he's going to go after Adam and say all of your work is going to be marked by thorns and thistles. All right, now let me kind of explain that. Now, look at verse 16. It says, To the woman, he says, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Now, many people just take that literally. Well, he's referring to there's pain in childbirth. Well, before the fall, it was just very easy. Uh, that's a nice, it's true. That's a literal way of looking at it. But just like murder has a much broader application than simply killing somebody, when he's speaking about this pain in childbirthing, uh, and here in, in the relationship with the husband and spouse, he's saying this, that all relationships now will be attended by pain. I want you to hear me, that, that the pain in childbirth is much more than simply giving birth. 
Because if you don't have children, then this doesn't apply to you. Yes, it does apply to you. In all relationships, as you develop relationships in marriage, friendships, work, church, you name it, as you create and shape, which is your calling and your destiny, as you do that, you will encounter thorns and thistles. There will be pain. Now, can I hear an amen on that? Now, in other words, as you move with God on your calling and your destiny in relationships, there will be suffering and pain. That's the point of this text. Now, in verse 16 in particular, at the bottom, he goes to the woman, your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. And that word desire, circle that, the same word that's found in Genesis uh, chapter 4, uh, when Cain is about to sin and kill his brother Abel, and the Lord says, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to master you. And that word desire is that she will desire to control or master her husband. In fact, there's, there's two ways, like, a, like an image of a, of a tiger or a beast wanting to devour. There's two basic options of how to interpret desire here. One is it can mean a woman is going to want a man so bad that she will let the man rule her or push her around or abuse her. Or it will mean, could mean that her desire will be to rule the man and then uh, he's going to want to rule too and uh, he will rule over you. That word rule is a very negative word. It's subjugate or dominate. And what it's basically saying is it's going to be a battle of the sexes. It's going to be painful of male and female relationships from this point forward. Uh, you see, both are true in experience, whatever meaning we go with. Uh, but the point is this, that there will be conflict now in marriage. All marriages will be marked by conflict. Amen. That's what it says. Now, if you're married here today, you know that in all marriages, there is pain. There is not a marriage without pain. There's a struggle of the relationship. Even just the fact that if you have an enormously awesome marriage, just the fact that they will come when one of you will die. And you will be in that bed and you will be alone. And that will be enormously painful. But that day will come too. There will be pain in marriage. In families, have you found out that there's pain in every family? Amen on that? There's pain for parents with children. And there's disappointment and pain of children with their parents. There's not a family that has not experienced pain in their love relationships. There is not one in all the earth, regardless of culture, regardless of country, regardless of educational background, regardless of, 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 of money, social class, it doesn't matter. In every family, there is pain. In fact, do you know any workplaces where there's not pain of relationships? Is there a job or a company or an institution where there is not relational conflict? Do you work there? You're saying, I work for the city. I, I, I. There's pain when people change. I was talking to a fellow the other day about becoming a Christian. He was saying, you know, if I, I can't imagine ever going to church. I mean, my parents, if I change, if, God, if I let God change my life, my parents will flip. Even the pain as we grow and change, there's pain in that for other people around us. Because people like us to be the same. I mean, we disappoint people. People disappoint us. I mean, there's not this intimacy, perfect intimacy in relationships. It's shot. So now there's thorns and thistles 
in all our relationships. In fact, rather than have intimacy, that close, familiar, affectionate, personal relationships, what do we have now? We, we have people manipulating other people. We've got abuse. We have nagging. We've got violent words said to people. We've got uh, put-downs. We've got people get, being passive, and I'm not going to go near you anymore, and withholding relationship because I'm too busy or I'm too angry, and being defensive and building up walls and all this pretending. That's what marks relationships. I mean, even church, and we're the people of God, and now the Spirit of God dwells in us, and, and we're to be markedly different through Christ. And, but even in the church, where we seek to build relationships now based on the power of the Spirit in Christ, the truth is there is even pain here. Amen. There's pain in the church in relationships. It's part of the, the fall. It's, it's, it's reality of the thorns and thistles. And, and so when you re enter into what God intends for your life, which is relationships, which is creating and shaping, having intimacy with God, intimacy with your spouse if you're married, intimacy with your close friends, intimacy with others in the body of Christ. As you do that, which is your God-given destiny, the Lord is saying, you will experience pain. You will experience disappointment, frustration, and suffering. You will always have a sense no matter how good that relationship is, there will always be something inside of you that is lonely. There'll be this emptiness in even the very best and the closest of marriages and friendships because there's a desperation for touch and relationship that's there. And because of the fall, sin, now I may experience moments of that with individuals, my, my spouse, very much, but it's not perfect intimacy. It's not there. There's pain, there's disappointment, there's conflict, there's thorns, and there's thistles. Amen. All right, now in verse 17, he goes after Adam. Adam's the, the curse there over the ground and is all about work. So it's not just in your relationships you can experience thorns and thistles. It's going to also be as you work. And he says to Adam, look at verse 17. To Adam, he said, because you listen to your wife, and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Now, just stop here for a second. It's interesting that, it, that he goes after Adam, and he makes mention of the fact of Adam and said, you know, it was my wife, and I just listened to her. It was her idea. And, and the Lord makes a specific going after Adam for his passivity because he's basically, I'm not responsible. I listened to her. And God said, you are responsible. And there's many a man in a marriage who just as whatever the wife says, and rather than listening to what God has, it's just easier to go along whatever she says. That passive, silent, I'll just go along. God says, I want to make it clear to you, Adam, you are responsible as well. Just like he was responsible for her life. But you're a separate individual with your own relationship with me, and you cannot hide behind her. It's just very interesting because we struggle so much with passivity as men, the way the Lord specifically goes after that in Adam, which I just think is an interesting thing for God to wake us up. But he goes, okay, now Adam, as you create and shape in work, Okay, not just relations, now in work as well. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. You will eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your brow. You will eat your food. Now, the ground before the fall was easy and soft. Now it's hard. Work is going to be hard. Work is going to be frustrating. In other words, you were built for the joy of engaging the earth. Okay, cutting through a virgin path, a forest, you know, and cultivating the land. In fact, 
Many scholars believe that prior to the fall, remember that Jesus did those nature miracles? He calmed the, you know, he calmed the waters with the word and the storm. Many believe that we as humans had that kind of control over nature, but was lost in the fall. Interesting thought. But, you know, many people think, well, I'm not going to be a farmer, and so I'm exempt from this. I work in an office. You know, I don't farm the land. And the point is this, is that no matter what your job is, no matter what you work at, you will experience frustration and failure. I'll say it again. Regardless of your work and what you do in life, in creating and shaping, you will experience frustration. You will experience failure. You will experience thorns and thistles in your life. Now, in other words, all that you do is going to be exhausting. Life is hard. Have you found out life is hard? Life is hard. I said, the Lord's saying, life is going to be hard. And uh, in fact, if you get rid of the thorns today, there'll be more thorns tomorrow. So some of us, we go from one job to another. Thorns and thistles of this job, I'll go to this job. Thorns and thistles of this marriage, I'll go to this marriage. And that marriage. Problem is, I go there and there are thorns and thistles are there too. Well, living is hard. You ever find living is hard? Just paying bills and, and getting your car repaired or getting the train. Just living is hard. There's thorns and thistles all through life. Success, you know, we, make, we, we reach something, we, we reach a goal, and then all of a sudden we realize, I, I don't feel so satisfied. I still feel there's something missing, another thorn and thistle. And it's frustrating. And, and uh, I mean, there are pastors that go from place to place because the church is frustrating. Thorns and thistles everywhere I go. You do ministry, you use your gifts, and you find out there's difficulty. It's problems. It's hard. It's not easy. I, so I leave and I go somewhere else. It's not hard. It's not easy there either. And I go somewhere else. It's not easy there either. And so hopefully by the time you're 80, you come to a place and you realize, you know something? Life is hard. Now, the killer says that even if you accomplish something, and I accomplish something, there's never a feeling of complete satisfaction. Like, let's say you buy Trump out. But, you know, or you accomplish your greatest goal, but even after it's done, it's like, I'm not completely satisfied. There's still this lengthiness there, and I, I can't put my finger on it. Now, it's like this. When you grow up, as a child, and you hit the world, it's like the world's like a playground. You know, you, you, you're three, four, five years old. Like the world exists just for you to play. Everyone exists just to give you joy. But then you realize you grow older that uh, this is hard. I mean, I, I got to go to school and learn. That's hard. Teachers, parents, kids in the schoolyard beating on me. And before you know it, it begins to dawn on you, hopefully before you die, that you realize, you know something? This is not a playground at all. This is more like a concentration camp. Because it's, there's, there's sweat here, there's hard work, and nobody's going to get out of here alive. I mean, that's, you ever think about that? Nobody gets out alive. That's really heavy. I know some of you are going to say, Pete, we're going to get you on some Valium to pick you up later. You sound very depressed. But it's in the text, verse 19. From dust you are, and to dust you will return. Nobody will leave here alive. Now, that's why it says in Romans 8, the whole creation groans 
for the end. The creation itself groans in, for the sufferings of childbirth that Jesus would return. There'll be a new heaven and a new earth. But the truth is, we live in this reality. This is reality. There are thorns and thistles in every relationship. And there are thorns and thistles in all work. Ministry, using your gifts, marketplace, you name it. Life is hard. That's reality. Now, now here's the choices we have to make. That is reality. Here's the choice. You can flee, you can fight, or you can embrace it. Now again, God is a surgeon. And he, 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 this, these, this curse is a gift of his love to you. So that you're not a rebel, arrogant, proud person. But this curse is to break you and drive you to your knees to Jesus. But most of us spend our lives running, we're fleeing, and we're fighting and not embracing. Now let me explain that. I spend most of my life, like many of you, avoiding pain. I hate pain. So I look for the least painful route. And, you know, I don't want to get hurt again. In fact, that's why many of us become Christians. You know, most of us are looking to get around the curse. We want to avoid the pain, and so... We don't want to be broken by it, the curse. We want to avoid it. And so many people use the Bible and use Christianity to avoid Genesis 3. And we wonder why people aren't maturing. And so we run from meeting to meeting to meeting, but we're really fleeing the very purpose of God in our lives. Now, let me, let me say what fleeing looks like. Let's say I'm a, I'm a great... Um, I'm a great plumber, okay? Sorry, Peter. All right, let's try something else. I'm a great carpenter, okay? I'm a great carpenter. I can build. I'm, I'm competent in carpet, ca carpentering, <laughs> building. I can build houses, and, I, and I'm, I'm a whiz there. But, and so what I do is I create a world where, where my world is around carpentry because I'm great at carpentry. I'm not very great at loving my wife, or very great at, you know, uh, you know, serving with my gifts or people, but I'm great at this, and so my whole life is carpentry. It's safe here. And so I don't deal with the rest of life. I flee into this entire world of carpentry. Or student. I, I love being a student. I, I wanted to be a perpetual student. You know why? It's nice and safe in the library for me. I can hide behind a stack of books and be a great student. Go to graduate school, postgraduate school, post, post, postgraduate school. And do it all for God. But it could all be running away and fleeing the curse. Because I don't want to look stupid. I don't want to fail. I don't want to be frustrated in all these other areas of life where I'm not very good. Are you following me? You know, some people get rich. I'm going to get rich. My goal in life is to get rich. Powerful. So that other people, I'll pay them to deal with the thorns and thistles. I don't have to deal with them. They'll deal with them. That's why I pay you. And they think they can avoid the pain. So they try to, their whole life is consumed with making money. You know, some people get married to escape the thorns and thistles. Uh-oh. Mm. I married you so I would not have to deal with the pain of life, and now I married you and there's more pain. I know, but I know inside you're saying, somebody's saying, that's right. I got married very much the intention to avoid the curse. To avoid the thorns and thistles of life. 
I thought this person was going to make it easier. And the shock when you found out it's not true, you know what happens? You end up despising your spouse. You despise them and you end up hating them because they made it worse. Some people bury themselves in addictions to flee. You know, we get into alcohol, drinking, drugs. I was talking to a fellow the other day, just, he just gets high three, four times a week, married guy, kids. Just, it's a great way to just forget it all. And that's the way he flees. The pain and thorns and thistles of his marriage, of his kids, of his job, of his life. I just get hot. And it all goes away until the next day. And it works. Some people get, you know, they, they, they get consumed in TV. You know, or movies. I mean, it could be anything, but some way to, to flee the pain of life. I don't want to deal with it. I want out. And, uh, you know, some people, you know, they, they withdraw from life. They flee by withdrawing. And so they don't want more responsibility. If I get in more relationships, it could be more pain. If I'm successful in my business, I could then have more responsibility, which is more hassle, more thorns, more thistles. I don't need it. I think I'll just withdraw. I'll do my little piece of life here. I'll retire at 65. I'll forget it all. It's easy. That's why many folks in their 40s go into affairs, get affairs. I mean, just some way to escape the thorns and thistles of life. Let me just get an affair. It's just easy. No pain in that. We meet, we have sex, and we go home. We don't have to relate. That's why adultery is so popular in our culture. It's such an easy way out of the pain. It's quick. And we like to anesthetize ourselves, like taking a drug, you know, just some way to flee the, the, the implications of reality. Now, some people don't flee. They fight it. Some of you are just like that. As you encounter thorns and thistles, you know what you do? You say, I love you, God. But I hate these people! <laughs> I hate this job! And that's your attitude. And really, underneath your sweet exterior is an enormous well of anger. And you're an angry, violent person inside. And you're not fleeing, you're fighting! And your life is a fight! These people in your way, and this work in your way, and the trains that are late, and the city that stinks, and the debt in our country, you go sickness, and you, you're, you're, you're angry, and you're fighting it. This thing won't break me, and you're, you know, violent, and, you know, and so that's why many people are, live their lives bitter and angry, their whole life. Now, that's why, you know, some of you, I relate to this very well, I, we, look, we look for sports teams that generally are winning because of the power involved in winning, like, I'm not a Chicago Bulls fan, but I wish I were right now, because they, they cream everybody. And so I had this vicarious pleasure of trouncing on this other team in sports, and I watched the team, and I go, yes! And it's like a way to get my violence. I have defeated the thorns and thistles of life. We have won. And that's why for many men in particular, sports becomes like this vicarious thing, and it's, it's, it's insatiable. Because I gotta get out my, my, I'm so angry at this world I live in. And uh, anyway, the worst scenario is it ends up in abuse, and some become abusers, some become, you know, all kinds of other sins, and from rape to beating, and actually do become violent, violent. So, you can flee and you can fight, but here's what God intends, and it's the only way you can have intimacy with God and with your spouse and with your other relationships. Let me, let me try to say this clearly. I do not believe that it is possible to have intimacy with God or intimacy with your spouse if you're married or intimacy with your closest friends if you are an idolater. And if you flee from the curse, now let me explain that, or if you fight the curse, you must embrace it, which is a bit painful. Now, 
Embrace the curse. Was there crying before the fall? I don't know. But we will not change deeply, deep change we're talking about, until we are broken by this thing called the curse. And so I'm going to give you three things of what I think it means to be broken by the curse. I can't fully expound on them all, and we'll have to come back to them. But uh, the first I'm going to simply call embracing the curse means this. It means honesty. Honesty is really hard for many of us that love to escape reality. We hate reality. But being honest and uh, not afraid to ask the hard questions about your own heart. Why is it that I love to flee? Why is it that I fight? You know, what, what is it in me? Uh, what do I need so I can love? Why is it I don't love people? You know, why is that? Being honest with those kinds of questions. Why, why is that? God, what is it in me? But those kinds of honest questions are really heavy to ask. To let God go inside of you. And, and uh, why am I so driven? Now, Dan Allender describes sin as this. I'll read you the quote. Sin is that fallen, autonomous, striving for life that refuses to bow to God. It's the internal reality that will not cry out to God in broken, humble dependence. Sin is our determination to pursue false gods and find life apart from that dynamic, moment-by-moment relationship with the living God. And idolatry describes this. Idolatry is placing our longing. Remember, you have a longing. You have a raging thirst for God. But we, we replace that. For what only we replace idolatry is placing our longings for what only God can provide into the hands of a creature. And so we fix on a person. They fill us now, not God. Might be a wife, might be a husband, might be a boyfriend, might be a girlfriend, might be a parent, might be a child. We we, we fix on an object, my career, a position. We fix on a on an idea. That becomes our God. But as John Calvin says, our minds are idol-making factories. And we look for another, there's something in us that wants an idol outside of God, somewhere to find life. I've read about this Christian lawyer, that, that very effective lawyer, won most of his cases, hardworking, taught Sunday school, but he kind of finally came to the place where he realized he was really an idolater because his whole life was driven by not failing. He did not want to look like a fool to his fellow lawyers. And so his whole life, that was his God, trying to look good, trying not to look weak. So he'd work day and night. He'd run over his wife, run over his kids, no time for them, because he's got to succeed and look good. That's an idol. But it come to a place of honesty and realizing, I am an idolater. Well, I go to church every week. It's a pretty heavy place to come to. So that you can't embrace the curse until you look inside and see the sin that's really there. What I'm saying is, most believers want to skip it. Let's get on to four steps to a happy marriage. Now, next is this whole issue of, of repentance. So it's honesty and it's repentance. Now, let me go to Luke 15 for just a moment. Luke 15. Repentance is facing what is true. And James 4 says, you know, I'm a sinner. I'm double-minded. I deserve to be separated from God. But Luke 15 is that famous parable of the prodigal son, which is the best picture of what repentance is. But if you know the story, this son, in chapter 15, verse 11, the father had two sons. The younger one says to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate, and he runs away. And he squanders all the wealth in wild living. 
And verse 14, after he spent everything, there was a severe famine in the, land, in the whole country. So he began to be in need, so he went out and hired himself out to be a citizen of the country, who sent him out to feed, sent him out to his fields to feed pigs. Verse 16, he longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. And when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare, but here I am starving to death. I will sit out and go back to my father. Repentance is a shift in perspective. It's this, saying, I have been eating garbage. Even though they might be good things, I am finding life in looking good. I am finding life in being a success. I am finding life in, in my relationship with this person. I'm finding life in people saying good things about me. I'm finding life in everything but God. It's pig's food. And repentance is coming to the place of realizing, I am living my life on pig's food. And it's coming to your sense and saying, holy mackerel, the food is at my father's table. And that phrase, coming to your senses, is what it means to repent. It's saying this, life can only come from that dependent, desperate longing for God and God alone. That's the only place of life is God that can satisfy and fill that raging thirst in me. And anything else is idolatry. That's repentance. And so in Luke 15, we're, we're, it takes a lot of humility to say something like that, doesn't it? Usually it takes people's deathbed to get them to that kind of brokenness and humility, to get so broken by the curse. And even then many fight. But in Luke 15, he returns and he, and he melts. I, I love this. It's a tremendous picture because verse 17, while he's still a long way off, his father sees him and was filled with compassion for him, and he ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. And repentance is, is, is coming to the father and letting his warm arms embrace you. Repentance is, is, is acknowledging the wonder of being received by the father. How could the father receive me? been such a crumb eating with the pig squandering my gifts my talent my life spitting in his face ignoring him but yet he receives me the wonder and the awe of that and we sang that song i believe in you i mean oh god it's unbelievable it's taking our place at the feast repentance is going is going to the feast and saying wow a feast over me the lord celebrates and let god just feast over you and your son and his daughter and and it's delighting it's delighting to be so to have this party for me now, let me explain something. Repentance is not a one-shot deal. Repentance is a process that gets deeper with life. I repented in 1984. Whoopee-doo. You probably built an idol the next day in your heart, you know. And it's, it's like a snowball, as far as it worked that well, but it's like a snowball going down a hill. As a snowball goes down a hill, it gets bigger and it moves faster. As you grow in your Christian life, repentance gets bigger deeper and moves faster into your heart. But it's a process that you live in. You don't graduate out of repentance. It's living embraced by the curse. But I'm at that table in awe. You see, if you don't get into that place of recognizing the depth of your own tendency to, to have idols, you don't understand. You can't have intimacy with God. Real intimacy. And you're only going to have intimacy with your spouse if you're married. Because that idolatry, that looking for life elsewhere, is killing you. It's an obstruction that 12, you can go to 40 seminars on 12 steps to a happy marriage. But you know something? Until you deal with the roots 
and the depths of Genesis 3 of embracing this curse and, and that autonomous, independent spirit within you that looks to fix on something for life outside of God and come into grips with that, I'm telling you, intimacy will be an elusive thing for you. I'll just close with this. You see, and out of that honesty and repentance, then you can boldly love people. Now, you see, you can't boldly love people. I mean, when I think of thorns and thistles, and I think of the, the fall, do I want to get in there and love people? Pain of that? I want to run. But Jesus said the mark of a believer, a mark of one of mine, is they they create and shape, they engage the earth, they boldly love. We're marked by love. We're the forgi most forgiving people on the face of the earth. Well, you know something? The Bible says, he who has been forgiven much, loves much. He who has been forgiven little, loves little. So the degree in which you receive forgiveness as, as a prodigal son of the table is the degree in which love will flow out of you. That's why people who, who are pointing out other people's sins, which is biblical, that aren't broken, and, un and understand they're worse sinners than anybody, they're dangerous. They kill you. That's why when you have a spouse that's pointing out the other spouse's problems, but they're not broken by their own sin, all they're bringing is more destruction. And so the, 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 the God's calling you to, to move out and love people boldly. But what I'm saying is if you're not doing that very well, which is probably most of us in this room, what I'm going to say is let's go back to the roots. Let's go back to the foundation. Let's go back to the beginning of your life. I know you can blame everybody in the world on why you're bitter, why you're angry, why you're not loving. I know it works well. But what I'm saying to you is that in the end it won't wash. Because your call is to love boldly. Which means confronting at times and humbling at times, not being a doormat, but it's being weak and vulnerable and moving out boldly in love. And that comes from a person who has been honest, who has repented, who lives repenting, and who is washed in the love of God for themselves. And thus they can give forgiveness. You can't give forgiveness. Loving is impossible. There's so many thorns and thistles. If you can't forgive, you're, you're stuck. You're done. Go to the dugout. It's not going to work. There's too many thorns and thistles out there. But I'll tell you, if your cup is overflowing with the love of God for you, and you can be in that place and live repentantly, forgiving and loving will flow. It will not be so hard. And that's what makes Christians the light of the world. We're the most honest people on the face of the earth, supposedly. We embrace reality. We don't run from our problems. We go into them. Honestly, humbly, we allow the reality of this fallen world to break us. We embrace it. And we're honest about who we are. We're not religious nuts. We embrace it. We, we live repentantly. And then we allow God to move out of us into loving other people. But you know, there's no love. Jesus, Paul says, you really don't have anything. That's why when I watch my heart and I don't feel very loving towards people, I get on my face because I know something's wrong. And it's not God, it's in 